Well, in 1903, as many of you remember when we were back there, after more than four years of research and development, Orville and Wilbur Wright finally got their flying machine off the ground. And that first flight went somewhere around 35 meters. Of course, it was a big deal. It was December 3rd when the flight happened. So after they, they wrapped up and, and packaged up the flying, flying machine, however they did that, they ran straight to the telegraph office and sent a, a message home to their sister Catherine and said, we have actually flown 120 feet and we're going to be home for Christmas. Well, their sister, of course, was pumped for them about this. So she grabbed the telegraph and ran straight to the newspaper article that said, you know, this is a big deal. And he, she told the editor the message that says, the boys, they've flown 120 feet and they're going to be home for Christmas. Look. And the editor glanced at the telegram and he said, how nice. The boys will be home for Christmas. <laughs> he had totally missed the big news. He had totally missed that for the first time in history, somebody had flown. And yet in his haste and his distraction and his whatever he was working on and just kind of had someone talking in the side, all he noticed that the boys would be home for Christmas. The entire course of history changed and he missed it because he was too busy with what was right in front of him. Now, of course, he's not the only one in history that has been too distracted to notice something in front of him. I'm sure we can all think of examples where we've been too busy with one thing and, and haven't really been paying attention to someone talking to us or what's going on. Or if we, you know, find ourselves on, on YouTube or, or uh, Instagram or TikTok or whatever, there are plenty of videos of people so focused on their phones that they fall into the koi pond or they walk into a pole or anything like this, right? Too distracted to, to see what's going on right in front of them. Some of our examples might be a little bit less humorous and more serious, where parents, how many of us have said about our kids, man, where did the time go? How, how, how I mean, I'm glad diapers are over, but how did that happen? Right? Like, they used to be crawling up and down, now they're running, and I, don't, I can't even keep up with them. Even as we relate to, to our parents, or maybe our grandparents, maybe we, we look at our lives and we're like, man, I, I got so caught up in me that, Man, I've missed some opportunities with my parents or my grandparents that I'll never get back. This morning, we're going to look at a passage in, in Luke's biography of Jesus where something really important was happening, but many people missed out on the most important piece. So let me read it for us. If you have a Bible, you can turn uh, to Luke chapter 19. Uh, we're gonna. I, I will pick it up at verse 28. But as you're flipping there, let me just say there's. Uh, this is a text that may be familiar to it. There's there's a bit of a uh, danger. I don't think is quite the right word, but there's a bit of a danger about the Easter season in that you know when you walk in on Palm Sunday, you know that the story of Palm Sunday is in all four Gospels, so you have a one in four chance on guessing what I'm going to speak from. Probably right. Sometimes you got to mix it up and go somewhere else, but. Same thing with Good Friday. You can probably guess what the topic of our Good Friday sermon is or service is going to be about, right? Same thing with, with, with Easter Sunday. There's, there's, there's a beauty to that, but there's a danger there as well. Sometimes when we become too familiar with something, we lose the awe of it. We lose the, the awe that once that grasped our hearts. I mean, it how many of us living here have just spent days walking up and down the, walking the garbage to the garbage can without stopping and looking around? Man. 
It doesn't matter what other part in, in, in your life it might be, but familiarity can just kind of breed overlooking something. And so as we read this text that might be quite familiar, let's just take a breath and ask that Jesus would speak to us through these words in a new way this morning. Luke 19, I'm picking it up at verse 28. When he had said all these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethpage of Bethany, at a place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples and said, Go into the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you'll find a young donkey tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it to me. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. And so those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the young donkey, its owner said to them, why are you untying the donkey? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. And as he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. And as he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. At the same time, some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones themselves would cry out. And this might be a familiar text for us, but this, this scene the, that we've dubbed the triumphal entry is a, is a complex event. There's a, there's a lot going on here. It's actually so important as well in the life of Jesus that it's one of the few things that is recorded in all four gospel stories that we have. There's a lot going on. It's complex. And so when we read these words some 2,000 years after they happened, there's, there's a number of things that are going on that might not mean much to us in our 21st century Canadian-ish context that would have been immediately significant to the Jews and to a first century Jew. And so even in the story, as we, as we read, we see that people were welcoming Jesus, many of them, with open arms. They were, they were uh, praising God joyfully, it says in verse 37, for all the miracles that they had seen. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. And they were, they were speaking and kind of cheering these verses over Jesus as they came in, verses that were, were quotations from Old Testament texts of, that were pointing to this promised king that was to come, this uh, anointed one, this Messiah, this long-awaited one. And they were, they were putting these words onto Jesus, which is why it got the religious people to have all their kind of shorts in a knot and say, Jesus, what are you allowing your people to say? All of Jesus' public ministry had been building up to this point. And yet as, as the people started to heap these words and these expectations on Jesus, many of them were actu actually misinformed. Maybe, maybe under-informed is a, is, is a right word. Because they weren't totally sure what was going on, and they kind of missed the deepest point of it. Uh, Luke has been tracing Jesus' public ministry to this point all throughout his gospel. If you want to kind of flip through with, with me, you can go back to chapter 9. And in verse 51, we read that uh, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. We see this many times in Luke where he kind of turns his face towards Jerusalem, and then we can kind of track it through. If you read Luke all at once, he just 
keep seeing this pop up. Jesus was on his way. He kept looking at Jerusalem. He set his face towards Jerusalem. A little bit later, in verse 10, you read Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem. Later, in 13, Jesus was going to the towns and villages, teaching as he went, but always pressing on towards Jerusalem. And then look at Luke 18. Jesus makes it really clear why he's headed this direction and what's in front of him. He says, uh, Luke records for us in Luke 18, 31, that Jesus took the 12 disciples aside and he said to them, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where all the predictions of the prophet concerning the Son of Man will come true. That's what's going on in this moment. All these, these hints and shadows from the Old Testament were starting to come true on Jesus. And he continues and says, the Son of Man will be handed over to the Romans and he will be mocked treated shamefully, spit upon, and they will flog him and whip him and kill him, but on the third day he will rise again. That's why this was such a big deal. Jesus has been moving towards Jerusalem for his whole life. That was his mission. That's why he came. He was actually born to die. And Jerusalem was where his life and his mission would be fulfilled. And that's why we're still talking about it 2,000 years later. This really is, this event we've read, this day we're celebrating today, Palm Sunday, really is the beginning of Holy Week, the most important week in the history of the human race. And so our, our question is, how did the people react to Jesus on that first Palm Sunday? If we flip to uh, Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 11, we read that that they shouted out things like praise God or or save us or in the original language as we've sung, Hosanna. uh, This was an an expression of praise that they were giving him. Their their hopes were in Jesus. They hoped that that through Jesus and because of Jesus, their lives could be saved. There would be changes coming uh, and their life would be revolutionized. And so Jesus got the rock star entrance. The, the city was bustling. It was Passover time. So there were people from all over had come into the city at this point. And, and then Jesus comes in. And they took blankets and their, their coats and palm branches and they laid them on the ground in front of Jesus to walk on. This was like the biggest thing they could do. This was a kingly entrance they were giving to him. The greatest honor that they could give to him. It was no wonder why they felt this way. They, they had heard and seen all the things Jesus had been doing, and, and, and they wanted everything that they hoped they, that he had to give them. They had surely seen miracles, and if they hadn't seen them, they had heard them first and maybe at best secondhand that Jesus had done these, these crazy things. They, they had seen and heard of it, so they, they wanted healings. They, they wanted uh, the food. They, they'd heard about these miraculous feedings that Jesus had done. And so, man, this would be a lot easier than farming if Jesus could just sort this out every day, right? They wanted money. They wanted jobs. They wanted health. They wanted love. They wanted their marriages to work out. They wanted their children to happen. Some wanted him to go all in and overthrow Rome so that, that Israel could be a great nation again. We read it in Luke. They, they were praising God joyfully with a loud voice for the miracles they had seen. They missed it. And take a minute and consider your life. 
maybe this weekend, the last week, last month, or even the last few years. And you and I, we can, we can look to Jesus for the same things, can't we? If someone came up to you and asked you, what is your greatest need? What comes to mind? Is it a job or maybe a new job, some kind of transition? Is it a financial need? Is it a, a need in a relationship? Maybe one to start, maybe one to stop. Maybe some healing in a relationship, some, some brokenness to be overcome. Is, is it a miracle that you're, you're asking for? Is it freedom from an addiction or anxiety or stress? Or, I hesitate a little bit to say, is it even overthrowing a government? See, our, our needs, and I'm not advocating that, but our needs aren't that much different 2,000 years later, are they? Right? So as we step into Palm Season, as we step into Holy Week, what kind of king are you looking for? Because again, I don't think we're much different than that. I wonder if we were to look at our prayers, and again, I, I want to be careful with this, how many of our prayers are too small? Even the ones that we think are really big, and I, I, if you've heard me before, you've probably heard me challenge you to pray bigger, but even the, the, the big ones, if you're like, man, my job situation, this is a big prayer, I, I don't even know what to do. This relationship is so broken and in tatters, this is about as big as I could pray, all the things, even the ones we think are really big, how many of our prayers are still too small? When we think of the kind of king we need, what are we looking for? That's the question of Easter, isn't it? Now, Jesus was laser-focused in his mission. He knew why he'd come. He knew what he was to accomplish. And I've been kind of... I, the word, I have the word agonizing written down. That's maybe a big word, but I've been kind of agonizing about this message for the last few weeks. Easter's a, it's a, it's a big deal, right? And I just keep coming back to the question, why did Jesus come? Fortunately, he told us. You can flip back to Luke chapter 4. And I love this. I think this might be my favorite story of Jesus in the Bible. I don't know how you pick a favorite, but it's, it's definitely up there. So Jesus, this is kind of the beginning of his public ministry in Luke's gospel. And as was his custom, he was at church uh, on Sabbath, or probably synagogue on a Saturday. And uh, he had started to maybe get a little bit of a following. So the, the local rabbi probably knew who he was and so invited him to, to, to read the scripture for that day. And so I don't know if, if the, the, the scroll he was to read from was already there or if Jesus just kind of casually walked up to the, to the library at the back and he grabbed one that he wanted, but he grabbed it and he unrolled it and he grabbed Isaiah, unrolled it to the place where he read this quote that was absolutely about the coming king. So why did Jesus come? He, he read this for himself. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to, to set free the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And if we were to keep reading, we would read that he just kind of rolled this like big scroll, like this big stain, rolled it up, just casually put it back 
and then sat down in the front and the room like was just silent. I said, this has come true in your presence today. Now, just like the crowds 2,000 years ago, you and I, we've got some issues. Our world, it's got some issues. We've got some things in our lives, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our churches that need some overcoming, and Jesus came for those. He came for that. Look at the list of things he said that he came to do. He came to bring good news to the poor, to the oppressed, to the marginalized, to say, no, no, you, you have value. You are important. You are, I don't care what culture says, you were created in the image of God. And you're worth something because of that. You're worth everything because of that. He came to, to release the captives, those who are so bound down either physically or, or spiritually. He, he came to give sight to the blind. People saw for the first time because Jesus touched them and prayed for them. He came to set free the oppressed and he came to proclaim that this long-awaited kingdom had started. So pay attention. And if we walk through the Gospels, we can look at, continue to look through Luke. We can read the other three as well. He did all of these things. There were miracles everywhere. But the miracles were never meant to be the highlight of his ministry. That's why that, that little statement in verse 37, 1937, is, is, is tragic, actually, right? They came and they were, they were singing over him because of the miracles they'd seen. They were never meant to be the highlight of his ministry. Instead, they were meant to be signposts. Giving sight was never just helping somebody see. Helping somebody walk was never just about a leg. Feeding was never just about satisfying a stomach. All the miracles were, were signs and, and signposts pointing to his divinity, fulfilling prophecy, telling the world that he was more than he appeared to be. So the, the people wanted a revolution as they watched him come in, but Jesus' revolution was bigger than any of them could imagine. They called for a rescue from their circumstances, but Jesus was bringing an even bigger rescue. They called for Jesus to save us. Hosanna, save us. But Jesus was bringing an even bigger and better saving than they could have imagined. See, Jesus wasn't just some other wise sage. He wasn't just some other traveling rabbi, some other teacher, itinerant teacher that went from place to place and, and stirred people up and then went on to the next place. He wasn't just another revolutionary that was trying to overthrow a regime. There were enough of those already. But Jesus was and is God in the flesh. And he came to earth and he became human to lay down his life for you and for me. And he had his eyes fixed on Jerusalem and he had his eyes fixed on the cross where he knew that he would die for the sins of the world in order to save the world. He came to meet us at our greatest point of need, which is more than financial, more than our jobs, more than our families, more than anything else we could come up with. He came to help us see, to open our eyes to see that there is a spiritual world and we have a spiritual enemy. He came to show us that we're held captive by worldly philosophies and ways of thinking. He came to tell us that we are, we are all, all slaves to sin. And he came to do something about it. He came proclaiming that Satan, sin, and death do not have the last word. 
He came to show us that there is freedom. He came to save the world. See, our biggest crisis, the biggest crisis we'll ever face is not financial, it's not relational, it won't have to do with school or work or neighborhood or place or any physical threat we might face in the future. Our biggest problem is the incurable virus of sin that separates us from God. And unless we're somehow cured of that, we will face an ultimate spiritual death, one that will last into eternity. But that's why Jesus came. And the even though every single one of us has in some way, shape, or form walked away from God, sinned, God is not content to see us floundering. He wants us to flourish. And even though it was absolutely his right to to reject us and completely abandon us after we had broken our covenant, after we had sinned against God, he could have just left us in our chosen wants and desires and actions, but instead God brings healing into that greatest point of need. So the offer in front of us, the offer of Easter, is the offering of forgiveness through what Jesus did on the cross. And know that every single one of us has something that we want or need or both forgiveness from. Every, every one of us has, has something in our lives that leaves us feeling uh, guilt and shame as well. I've heard this analogy uh, by another pastor a couple of years ago, so I'm indebted to James Emery White for this. But here's how I've, in, I've heard forgiveness described. Uh, I've, I think I used it here maybe a couple of years ago, but it's, it's still important. It says, imagine all of us wanted to be forgiven, but we needed to sort of get organized first to, to figure that out. And so we all sort of line up in front of some, I don't know, forgiveness desk, we'll call it, and we give our name and describe our worst sin. And then we, we get that name, along with a sin, written on two name tags and stamped on our chests. We have to wear it. First person steps up to the table. We'll call him Bob. The person at the table says, what's your name? He says, I'm Bob. What's your most awful sin, Bob? We won't be setting up this table later. This is a story. So. <laughs> and Bob says, I stole, some bo- I stole some money from my boss once. So he gets two name tags. Bob and Bezler goes and sits down. The next comes up, what's your name? She says, Mary. Mary, what's your most awful sin? And she says, well, I I slandered some people. I said some things that weren't true. I was trying to knock them down because I I just really didn't like them. And so I was trying to, so the person writes Mary on one side, slander on the other. She gets her name tags. George comes up. George, what's your most awful sin? He says, well, I've been coveting my neighbor's car and his mountain bike and his skis and his renovated kitchen and all the things. So right, George, stamp, coveter, stamp. One by one, all the people come through, and eventually it's Sean's turn. He walks up, and I don't even know where to start, so I'll just take Sean and Sinner. Fill it out however you like. And I've had anger, I've had hate, I've had lying, I've had lust, I've had pride, I've had greed, all, all these things are just like burdens. So I get my name tag. The process goes on until every one of us has our two name tags. And then Jesus walks in. He comes to the front, gets his Jesus name tag. What's your sin? There's nothing there, of course. But instead, Jesus starts to walk down the line through the room where all of us are sitting. He says, Bob, I'll take that one. Sean, I'll take yours. Mary, I'll take yours. And he goes through the whole room and he, until he's covered with other people's 
sin name tags. Not one single person in the room is left out. And then he goes to the cross. And Jesus dies with those name tag sins covering his body. And his body broken and his blood shed washes away every single one of those sins. But we all keep our name. And what's left over for everybody is just our name, which has been made new and not our sin. See, that's what we're celebrating. We're, we're, we're celebrating that Jesus did that for us, and we have the opportunity to accept that he is willing to come to every one of us and say, what is it? I'll take it. And in fact, in our day, I've, I've dealt with it. That's not, that's not you anymore. That's not true of you anymore. You're not a liar. You're not a coveter. You're not a sinner. You're not broken. Maybe you've heard this before. Maybe you've never heard this idea of forgiveness before, but you want to accept that gift of Jesus for yourself. Maybe uh, you've grown up in or around church and were turned off by church or you were, you were beaten on or, or broken by, by people who said they were Jesus followers or maybe even leaders, maybe even pastors. Can I just say on their behalf and mine that I'm sorry? I'm not perfect. I have made mistakes. I will continue to make mistakes. I will let you down. I've misrepresented Jesus, but please... If you want to look for the perfect, right version of the Christian faith and life, don't look at me. I'm growing. I'm trusting that I'm, that I'm getting there by the work of the Spirit. But look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, as the Scripture says. If you've maybe got that stirring in your heart that it's time to come to Jesus or it's time to, to, to hand more of those name tags that you're trying to hold on to yourself and just give them to him, you, you realize that you've tried other things and still feel far from complete, that something's missing. Maybe it's time to accept or re-accept or accept again that forgiveness that Jesus offers from the cross. And you know how you can start or, or restart that relationship? It's not actually that hard. You can just say, yes, Jesus, I'm in. I, I, I need you. I, I can't do this on my own. I've tried and it is not going well for me. Jesus, forgive me. Make me new. Thank you for what you did on the cross for me. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to deal with your name tag before you come to Jesus. It just starts with a yes. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Holy Week that we are stepping into I pray that you would uh, forgive me and, and maybe us if, if, uh, if I'm not the only one for coming into an Easter season and, and, and maybe having lost some of my awe of all that you've done for, for it. I pray that we wouldn't be like uh, that, that newspaper editor to just be happy to hear that the boys are home for Christmas but miss that they actually changed history. I pray that we wouldn't be so familiar with these words and, and this season and this time that we would miss Jesus, that you gave up your life to, to pay for our sins, to make us whole, to make us new, to adopt us into your family, to change the course of our history, to change the course of the world. I pray that you would be rattling through our hearts and minds with that this week. 
I pray that for, for those of us who need to, for the first time or the tenth time or the hundredth time, that we would just give you our yes. Yes, Jesus, help. Forgive me. Make me new. Thank you for what you did on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.